Hey everyone, welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I hope you're keeping well. I'm here today with Anthony. How's it going? Good, it's good. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, very well. Um, been suffering from a chronic migraine, which has been whooping my ass, but uh, it seems to be uh, seems to be telling off now. So, as you can tell, my sunny disposition is returning as the, the buds are falling from the trees. Um, so, I think today we're carrying on with the folk theme, aren't we? But um, on a slightly different angle, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about our guest? Yeah, so our guest is, um, I think, one of the modern greats of his field at the moment. His name's Sam Amadon, and he's a folk musician, but he kind of walks in many different musical circles of free jazz and experimental. And yeah, we had him on to talk about storytelling in folk, the history of folk music, what he's up to. And yeah, just had a nice chat. Well, I think without any more ado, let's hand over to Sam. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. Today, we are joined by a friend of the shop and musician extraordinaire, Sam Amidon. Sam, how's it going? Good, thank you. Good, to, good to hear you guys. I was going to say, see you. Good to hear you. Yeah, we've got to be quite clear that we're not we're not sat in some. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tiny. We'll booth. have we'll have the app tracers on us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Sam. Um, for people that uh, might not know your music or your background, um, you're um, an eclectic mix of a musician, but I guess predominantly folk is where you'd start. Um, and you grew up in Vermont, is that right? Yes, I'm from Brattleboro, Vermont, which uh, when I was a kid was and still is a hotbed of uh, sort of hippie, folky, folk musician type people. And um, and uh, so I grew up in the midst of a lot of that music of folk dancing, fiddle tunes, harmony singing. And um, and then uh, the, the capsule story would be like as a teenager, I became interested in all different kinds of music and then came to New York City and then almost was kind of trying to get away from folk songs and playing in different kinds of groups and stuff outside, like experimental music or indie rock or whatever, and, and kind of almost accidentally found myself singing the folk songs again, but sort of reworking them and reharmonizing and recontextualizing and playing, using them as kind of a platform for collaborating with a lot of the musicians that I found there and beyond. So mm. I sing I sing folk songs, but I, I love, you know, it's, it's looking for different textures and feelings within them. Yeah, and just uh, to go back to your upbringing quickly, your parents were folk archivists or? Uh, they were folk singers, products of the, I have a theory that I won't bore people with for too long, but that each it's not too elaborate, but in a sort of very, very vague way, each each generation has like their own version of the folk revival and their own version thing of what folk music means to them. If you think back to the 1930s and Woody Guthrie, and it was so connected to the music of the working man and sort of socialism and all that stuff. And then in the 60s, it was with Dylan, it was so connected to, you know, the kind of... Um, strumming guitar and you know expanding the topics for a song like like pop music was all love songs but dylan was so inspired by the fact that folk songs were often about political like they were often murder ballads or they you know they talked about different topics and he that informed his writing which then just informed the whole world of songwriting 
And then in the 70s, by the time it got to the 70s, which was my parents, when, you know, when they were in their 20s, it, uh, their folk revival was really around, um, uh, not around the guitar strumming singer person. And it was much more about the collective thing. So for them, it was all about folk music not being around a performer and an audience, but being around a community activity. So they were interested in folk dancing, specifically contra dancing, which is sort of like a New England version of a Kaylee. And um, they were, which is just, you know, people dance together and it's not about showing off your moves. It's, it's just a collective thing and group tune sessions and, uh, and then harmony singing, you know, the premise that anybody can sing in the, in, 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 and, and that it's not about soloists, but it's about, you know, harm, various forms of harmony singing. So they yeah. were, they are performers. They've put out great records of folk music. Lots of them for are for kids. Some are just for general listeners. But their main life has really been in all different. They're not academics at all. They're more about. Um, they were music teachers originally, and then they became people who they were like music teacher gurus. And they've put out all these books and CDs to help music teachers use folk materials in the classroom. But they also lead harmony singing for it's all about participatory stuff. That's been their main. So they they themselves are great banjo players and guitar players and singers and arrangers and stuff. But they've never been into they've the, the whole idea of them performing in front of an audience has been a, a much lesser part of their thing. It was really about you know being work leading workshops, you know helping people be into the music themselves. That's their thing. Mm. But my dad, but my dad was a composition major in college before he got into folk music. He was really into Bartok, um, and Bartok has really been a touchstone. I've been thinking about him recently because, because you know, Bartok uh, was a insane modernist, super futuristic composer. But of course, tons of his themes were directly were were Hungarian fiddle tunes and folk songs, mm. and he has especially in his the duo violin. Um, duo, duets and his um, for children, which is a piano, simple piano pieces. That they're actually harmonically very complex, but you can play them at a beginner level. And also the Romanian dances, string orchestra music, which where he he used these uh, Hungarian village folk songs and just harmonized them in all these incredibly inventive ways and often super out. And my dad really loved Bartok and was deeply so that was a real sound we heard growing up. And I think I was listening to it the other day because I found a recording of uh, the For Children piano stuff and mm. that I hadn't heard for many years. And it was re re I was realizing how much I love it and how much I think it influenced the whole idea of reharmonizing the folk songs. And um, not that I have, I probably have one one millionth of <laughs> Bartok's harmonic knowledge, mm. but um, but. Uh, yeah, just the idea of that. And and my dad also, he was never that, and he didn't listen to jazz or anything. He was more into classical music, but but he, as, a, as a hippie, you know, in his late 60s, he had Bitches Brew, the Miles Davis record. And he loved that. And that, just the idea of like improvisation where they're a bit outside of their comfort zone, because on Bitches Brew, they're like, there are these jazz musicians that, and they think they're playing rock music, but they're totally failing at it and just making what actually just sounds like aliens thinking they're playing, <laughs> making rock music. And and just that idea of sort of general improvisation outside of a, um, so he gave me that record when I was a teenager. So they they were both you know, it, they were interested in different things and they had all discovered it. They're not like authentic folk people in the sense of like mountain. You know, they they discovered it as in their twenties. But in a way, they made it authentic because by the time me and my friends were children, 
that was just our childhood, you know, was that mm -hmm. world. And it was very, it was, it was not, there was nothing nostalgic about it. Nobody dressed in old fashioned clothes at a dance. It was just, you dressed, you know, it was like you were in your Birkenstocks and your tie, whatever, but, but, um, but it was, you know, so they just, they literally just created it and made it part of our lives in a very unselfconscious, uh, unselfconscious way. Mm. I love this, um, this, this idea of the kind of generational folk revival. What do you, what do you think is the kind of, the version for our for our generation. So then I think so. If, if the seventies and early eighties was that kind of uh, collective uh, thing, I think that then, and it I did maybe it it skipped the nineties a little bit. Although it was a hugely influential thing for me was Kurt Cobain singing um, Lead Belly song on the at the end of Unplugged in New York, mm, and yeah, he yeah. says this is one of our favorite. He says this is our favorite musician. Lead Belly, and to me, as like a thirteen-year-old who was like trying to be cool, and and like the music of my fam family was like so dorky, like and like <laughs> I was like it was so mind blowing to have Kurt Cobain, you know, sing that folk song and just sing the shit out of it, and um, and I saw um sorry just I go just, ahead no no I saw a clip of you um that you put up playing fiddle on stage with when you're when you're young and you look incredibly grunge oh yeah <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Well, I look more like I looked a lot like the handsome guy. I think I thought I looked like Nirvana, but really people just thought I looked like the handsome. I don't know if anybody in England knows so that. Cleaned up, cleaned up, cleaned up. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> yeah, I was doing my best to look blasé. Um, but so yeah, so well, the thing is uh, to answer your question, Sam. The, I, the 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 sort of next thing that I think really happened in the late '90s and early 2000s was 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 folk music as as a weird thing, you know, the kind of new weird America and the old weird America and the whole like um, Devendra Bonhart and um, mm. you know um, there was a group Sunburned Hand of the Man in Amer in Boston and I'm trying to think of who you know and the Harry Smith people getting really interested in the weirder element of the old field recordings and because it was interesting for me as a kid like I didn't really hear that many field recordings of like the Harry Smith stuff. Like my parents all had those records, but they didn't actually listen to them. They just learned the songs from them and then sang them. So, cause for them, it was such a living thing, you know? And so like, I remember as a teenager, I saw the Harry Smith album being reissued and reviewed and all these, you know, rock magazines and stuff. And I went to buy it. And my mom was like, you know that that's quite scratchy, you know, like, like in her, like, like, like she's like, they were great for learning the songs. And obviously they are great musicians. They love the musicians on them, but to them, it was kind of like, well, why would you go back? They, they didn't think it was, I mean, they thought it was cool. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I know that song. What's the, you know, exactly. But, but I think for people in that era, you know, when I was in my early twenties, like it was the people were, and, and me included getting super excited about, you know those the just this, the the alien nature of the recordings that it's like it's American it was our culture and yet you know it, it sounds so like like the out of weird out of tune banjos and the you know the the intense uh, nasal voices and the scratchiness of the and it was really you know I think people really I don't know why that struck such a chord with people but it kind of um, obviously there was the whole like oh brother side of it as well like just you know just loving all the songs but 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 I think to me that the most exciting element was that people who are seeing the connections between yeah the kind of more experimental element and seeing it as a continuum to like just the weird like like Herman Melville you know like like who it, it, Herman Melville being like like he's like the you know it's like the the modernist weird like he's writing all these insane ideas but it's all connected to like these deep the, the deep like ancient 
folk practices of like whaling and the specificity of the boat life and or the specificity of like the New England mountain were you know so he's he's like doing something completely insane and mad and 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 experimental and yet or like confidence man you know which is like you know just so crazy and yet it's also really tied to like you know con this different american old-fashioned cons and so i that's what to me that's what i sort of what i'm most excited by I, what you know where it is now that was i mean i'm getting old now <laughs> so I, I don't know i don't know what somebody who's 15 is into when they check out folk songs what their version of it is but i think it's really interesting because we just in our last episode we we're talking to somebody who runs this episode um the zine called hellball uh, which is all about folk horror revival in literature and wow. i think it's it's funny how you do have these kind of cyclical um revivals yeah, yeah stuff how, gets rediscovered it's always 10 years behind in in books as well <laughs> 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 yeah, and I mean it's different in each, and each one has its sort of sub- simplistic assumptions that it's making. Like, like you know, like one thing about the kind of scratchy, the thing, the fetishization of the weirder stuff. Like one thing that I think is funny is with a lot of the uh, field recordings that we listen to, that are much people listen to a lot more now, which is great. But what's funny about them is a lot of them were made in like the 1960s, at which point a lot of this music had sort of passed out of the culture in general. And so a lot of the people that are being visited and recorded are quite eccentric. And a lot of them hadn't hadn't actually played their instrument for a long time before, you know, the field recording people got to them. Like so so part of what why a lot of those field recordings are so like the violins are out of tune and the player is super scratchy is just because it's a really old person who's hasn't been playing for many years. And when you listen to a lot of the recordings from the 20s and 30s, it's actually a lot of those people, their technique is much more conventionally good and they're like just ripping, you know, it's super in tune. And so it's easy to kind of, but at the same time, it's beautiful that, that we reached them at that other phase. Like there are all those phases are beautiful, um, mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, one of them is not necessarily more valid than the other. Just with um, regards to your own music and how you, like the touchstones for how you write or how you um, come up with concept for a song, like just to take an example of your last record, um, Following Mountain, there's a tune called Warren that I read was based on a poem. Yeah, the, well, I knew it as a sacred harp song, shape note song, which is this weird folk hymn tradition in America. And where, where people would, uh, in sacred harp music, it started in the Puritan era of New England in the late 1700s. And at that time, um, you know, um, you could only sing the music in church and it was really boring because harmony felt good. So it was viewed as suspicious. So the music in New England in the late in church was just like a melody and it was super boring. So meanwhile, down at the bar, there were all the sinful people who were going to hell who were singing all the pirate songs and drinking songs. And so there were teenagers in the Puritan society who were, you know, trying to stay on the good side of their society, but they would walk by the bar and they'd hear all those songs and secretly they wished they could sing them. And so what they did is they took the melodies to the pirate drinking songs, which were all murderous and salacious, and they changed, they took they took Christian poetry and set the sinful melodies to the Christian poetry. And then for fun, they wrote harmonies. So it was kind of a, just a get around. Um, and it was viewed with a bit of suspicion from the church, but the church kind of allowed it. Just it was they did it socially. So and it became this whole genre. Then it just they started writing their own melodies, and it became this whole genre of hymn singing, where that where these farmers and people around New England, and then it, later in the American South, 
would take Isaac Watts poetry or all these different 1700s English Christian poetry and they would set it to music. And so I knew it as a sacred harp song, which is also called Warren. Um, and but I had written totally new music. And so I I just and, and it actually is just a poem. It's a 17th century English poem called Sleep Downy Sleep. And I took most of it. And then I also nicked a couple uh, sentences from like a really ancient Chinese poem. And um, I put those at the end. But the, or maybe I wrote another line of my own in there. I can't remember. But it's basically 90 percent of it is this old English poem. Sleep down, I sleep. And then I set it entirely to music. And so there's kind of a range on my records. Like The Following Mountain, I wrote all the music 100% original on that record. But on the rest of the albums, it's kind of a range where, you know, maybe a half of the half of the tracks, um, the melody is the same, but the harmony is rewritten under, and the, you know, everything around the harmony is, it's totally recontextualized. And then for maybe a quarter of them, the, the, even the harmony and the melody is pretty close to the original, and it's just my version. But then mm. at least a quarter, I would say, on most of the records, I've written, pretty much written the music. Maybe not a quarter. It depends on which album. But, you know, in many cases, so it's kind of, that's the pendulum swinging from, on the one hand, cases where I've entirely written the music and just used words from a folk song. And then on the other the pendulum where I'm just doing, you know, I'm just singing a folk song. And then on the following mountain, it was a particular um, particular challenge, like I set to myself, because I felt like I felt like I was at risk of sort of beginning the folk song reharmonization thing. I think I felt like was kind of personally, I just didn't have anything more to do with that at that moment in time. And I felt like if I tried to do it again, it would be a gimmick. And it, it never has been. It's always been something that's just like super feel, you know, happens really organically each time. And um, in fact, each time, each time I made my first four or five records, I thought, okay, this is the last one I'm going to do <laughs> of reworked folk songs. And then the next, uh, and the next time I would, and then the next time came around and it would just, they just kept on coming back and then it, they didn't. So I'm like, okay, good. So I'm going to start at zero and see what happens. And um, so I, uh, I really, so I wrote, but I think, yeah, but I, so that one, the, the music was entirely original. And then some of the words, some of the songs, like many of them, I wrote the words as well, but then in that, in that one, I, I uh, used the poem. I've always thought it's so it's so interesting that um, folk music seems to be so much more comfortable with you know this repurposing uh, than in than in literature where it's always kind of a rupture you know when there's a kind of postmodern crisis where yeah everything is you know I, I guess out of venue and everything is uh, a form of recursion of something else um, yeah and that's, and that's a terrible problem and all of these and 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 kind of these these recursions are always tied to violence but whereas in folk music that's kind of the form <laughs> and yeah that's fine there doesn't have to be some kind of rupture and I wondered when you in your reading um how you think about that how you know in terms of when you're reading fiction and you're that's a good question I think I think it is interesting because if you are raised within in the zone of like traditional music and folk songs it's just such a radically different way of thinking about um like like what is as you're saying what is so normal there would be so strange somewhere else like the fact that there's just no author to all these songs you know mm -hmm. and partly that's just because we just sometimes just don't know who it was because it was some guy who made it up and taught it to somebody else and then it's the path of started and it was never credited but in other cases it really there really is no author because you know each it's song they change as they, so eventually you just have something that was made collectively and that's so beautiful mm -hmm. and strange and and so much of that 
I think was because of the the lack of recording technology compared to text, which has been able, you know, for a thousand years, you've been able to know, you know, if somebody wrote something down and it was still there with their name on it, you know who wrote mm -hmm. it. Whereas, you know, in the folk song has that whole thing where at the bar, you might learn a song and then you might be walking home like for an hour to your house, singing it in your head to try and remember it, but you're drunk. So by the next morning, you've forgotten the third verse and all of a sudden you're singing it without a crucial plot verse. You know, that just makes the song have almost like have big yeah. missing like crew like and then maybe you write a new verse to fit that that totally changes the whole plot. So, you know, that whole accidental nature that became much that, that was just so just uh, because it out of it, it wasn't anybody's intention around the genre, just how it went, went down. And yeah. um, I think has been and I've tried to kind of not like in a self-conscious way, but like I've. I, I've, I've been, I'm still very inspired by that. And there's still times, you know, on my own albums where like, like there's a song that has a very ambiguous ending in the version I sing, uh, Pretty Fair Damsel. And yet I think that the MP3 I had of that just had cut off and didn't have the final verse where <laughs> the person reveals himself to be her actual husband and it's like a big happy ending or whatever. But, it, you know, but it was so much more beautiful without that without that being tied up that way. And and I've tried to allow for, you know, accident and and improvisation to be part of the recording process in different ways as well. Like on the earlier records uh, that Nico Muley did orchestrations for, he he never let me hear what he was gonna do. So I would like come back to the studio and there would be a whole mini orchestra like part that had been done without my permission, you know? <laughs> so wow. just like allowing for elements of that traveling to happen even in this process was has been fun adventure and i think it's true that it, like when you turn to something like for me like reading books like i don't know I, i'm up for anything because because mm. th those rules that would be you know as you say like things that would seem very self-conscious just seem like just seem very natural i think outside of it. yeah so so I'm up for anything when I read, but I'm not a very like uh, I'm. It's I didn't read a huge a huge amount like until I was about 28. I was mm -hmm. I did read the I did read weird I did read books here and there, and I was often inspired by bits of them and stuff. But um, but I'm not in a way I'm not a very critical reader. I'm just it's like a I'm because I'm still just in the devouring stage right now. <laughs> like as a teenager i was just in the devouring stage of music and films and i still love those things but i i'm now in the devouring trying to be in the devouring stage of books although i'm not as uh and you know it, yeah it takes practice like it's a muscle it's a good stage it's definitely it's a, a beautiful stage. i mean i love it it's so I, it's all it's so fun i can't get enough i'm yeah. deep in the zone but but definitely yeah things like melville who or uh, I'm trying to think who else, because he's such a like he's the perfect example. But um, mm. but but yeah, I think things that are tied both to like some weird ancient practice and yet also are just totally mental. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can kind of slowly get to grips with that. Yeah. Through it, through its specificity as, 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 as you kind of embed yourself into it. Absolutely. Like, what are all these wild things that are happening? <laughs> as you, yeah, as you definitely. Get context, then, yeah. No, I think I think that um, 
the way that a novel can build a world is um yeah yeah i was reading don quixote all last year and it was you know it was perfect it was like it because again it was like totally so weird and quote you know and and insanely like it's beyond any 20th century you know postmodern like the the all the different like the fact that it's the manuscript that he found at the, and by the arabic historian and then he doesn't know how he doesn't speak arabic so he has the dude down at the the fruit seller translate it for him and yeah. it's just and then you're in the middle of the fight scene and it stops because he lost he realized he didn't have those pages anymore a lot of those are very much like folktale you know Exactly. So, I mean, cause I guess it's it's an early novel, and in a sense, it's a kind of a parody of a romance where they didn't yeah. have, you know, readers didn't have this this concept of kind of sequential causality, and so they totally. didn't have to follow on one after the other, and then you get to the end. Have you checked a book out, either of you, called uh, "The Manuscript Found at Saragossa"? No. No. The Saragossa manuscript. It's by this Polish weird polish count who might have been a kabbalist and it takes place in spain and it's a, a guard who gets lost in this mountain pass and he's been warned that there are these two brothers who are dangerous bandits and as he's walking he sees their bodies hung up like somebody's caught them and and and, and hung them and their corpses are hanging and then he comes to this inn and he goes inside and he gets seduced by these two beautiful women and who claim to be his who were his cousins but in the middle of like their whole like night of passion he wakes up and he's he has the corpses he's lying on the ground with the corpses of the two bandits the brothers on either side of him like the women have become the corpses of the brothers and and then he's totally freaked out and disgusted and so then he keeps on in the woods but then basically like it keeps on like the versions of that keep on recurring it's from this it's from the uh, late 1700s and it's very uh quixote ish but it's totally insane and again it has that quality of like like the like because some of those murder ballads, like that other element of the folk song you know the murder ballad so dark and strange and you know and um and 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 unexplained and and but you know but 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 so beautiful like clearly like weird unconscious stuff so uh that but that book is worth checking out the manuscript at saragossa nice that sounds that sounds crazy oh, to link that i'm sure we can get a hold of that i'll be madly giggling now if i didn't want to order it <laughs> yeah get it in get it in and sell it just make people buy it you mentioned uh nico muli like and your collaboration with him and you collaborate with loads of Incredible musicians like Bill Fussell, Milford Graves, and Gendel. And is that something that you you kind of started doing because to keep the live show always fresh, or is it just always that you want to kind of you know move between you know different positions well, and when you travel? I mean, it, I think it's just the most the best thing about music, you know, is that that ability to play with other people. And I think that um, I think. I mean, yeah, it's just been a dream. And and I think the thing that I found was like when I when I came to New York and my and I was really wanted to, you know, become a musician, I didn't quite know what it was going to mean beyond like I knew that I like I had learned to play fiddle. That was my skill was playing, you know, Celtic fiddle tunes and American fiddle tunes. But I, I felt like I kind of <clears throat> I didn't know where I wanted to go. And I I thought maybe I would become like an improvising violin person or a 
learn guitar and be like play guitar with people or something i didn't really know what it was going to be and i was trying out different stuff without much you know sense of what necessarily the direction was and and it just happened that um when i started doing these you know writing these little guitar parts and then realizing i could sing a folk song you know over it and have it feel really different and the guitar parts that i wrote that i can write for a lot of these songs especially on the earlier ones they're uh, later as well they're like they're pretty simple, but they, they're like little, they're pretty open. They have a lot of space in them. Like it, it, it just so happened that because they left that sort of space, they were really fun, I think, for people to interact with, whether it was Nico doing arrangements or Shazada Smiley or Bill Frizzell, people who are master improvisers, you know, just playing and improvising on them. Cause they, they were just like these little structures with odd hiccups in them but they're very modal and so people could just interact with them and, and there was a lot of room for other people to do stuff on them and so that was very lucky to and it was just like a something i could bring to them in a way like like i think um maybe if i hadn't found that i would now be like i don't know what like a free jazz violinist or something i'm not <laughs> sure but it, it or but i would do that with other bands and it was fun but i you know it was okay but i was and i loved it because it was a great chance to try something else out but when I sort of happened upon this, it really felt like it was something I could bring to them that was exciting and interesting, you know, for people and, and brought something out in them. And um, but also it was a little bit just connected to the the thing that happens in another element of folk music. Like if you think of fiddle tunes, is that partially because it's a small world, but partially because it's about collectivity, you know, there's not as much of a, a divider between amateur and professional or you know, like, like you can like the whole tradition of a pub session, like an Irish session in Ireland. You know, you walk into the pub and you sit and you can play. The rule is that you can play, and there's a lot of more subtle rules about how you do that. You know, respectfully, but um, unspoken rules that you sort of figure out. But, but you know, the best, the greatest fiddle players and musician, you know, musicians in the tradition, after their gig, will go play the session in the pub with whoever you know and mm. so i think from having that experience like so there for me there was um, tons of fiddlers kathleen collins and sue sternberg and all these different people but um uh, marie nimwini from altan like uh, uh, you know and and but there was one in particular tommy peoples who was like who was like my miles davis for irish tunes that was like my complete guru of fiddle playing and he mm. and he you know, he just played a two nights, a, three nights a week in the pubs around Clare. And when I was a teenager, we went on a trip so that I could try and find him, basically. And we, um, and just you know, you asked where does Tom, where is Tommy playing, and they told you which nights and which bars. And so you know, you just walk in and sit there and play along. And you know, and 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 so I think that um, something about that idea of elders, you know, and master the kind of t- t- the tradition, not in the sense of tradition like set forms, although that is part of the tradition, but but also just like elder wisdom. And so I think that has, you know, that's part of what got me to seek out people like Milford Graves, who is, you know, in his 70s and has been playing free jazz since he helped invent it, like in 1964 with Albert Eiler. Did he also study Indian classical? Yeah, he studied a lot of deep, he studied a lot of tabla and Indian classical music. He studied, he came up in the Afro-Cuban scene in New York, so he did timbales. And he his his own solo music, this is Milford Graves we're talking about, his own solo music kind of sounds like four masters of each of those traditions 
all playing at once in the same room, but without being able to hear each other or something like they're all this. It's like totally multidimensional, crazy. And yet you hear elements of forms in there. And so when I played with him, he was very interested in like, like if I played something of the Kentucky mountain style, he was intrigued by that, you know, because he, he was intrigued by anything that had that kind of, uh, yeah, like the deep tradition vibe, but, but, you know, just playing it out of context. So yeah, I just it's just like I've I definitely have made it a seek out a lot of those people who are mm. deep inspirations to me. But the key, the the challenge and the key is sort of, you know, not just having it be like, oh, and now I'm playing with this person of this style, you know, like to really have it be organic case. And mm. like with Frizzell, who's been like one of my major heroes and totally like in awe since I was like 15 or 17, maybe, you know, I, I even though I, I was really lucky to then to get to know him but i waited a few years it you know it was a few years before we played together and i think it it wasn't until we had like a sense of how it could be happening organically mm. instead of just throwing it together and are you, you are you in touch with obviously all of these guys at the moment and are you kind of planning things for the future or is- um i'm chugging along i've made a uh i've fin- just finishing a, a record that'll come out in the fall sometime which is more more back to folk songs, but kind of using the sonic palette a bit more of the following mountain, but reapplying it back to the folk songs. And um, so I'm just finishing that now and had re- recorded it over the winter. Because each album also is just like a, pla- a chance to learn something and to try something. And I think on a lot of the different records, like on the first album, the chicken, the first album I made is just like literally like learning how to play guitar. <laughs> like the there's like the like the track like I used the, tr- the the way I decided what track to use on the chicken album was the it was the first one that I made it through to the end without messing up and uh and it was kind of like that and it was all so new and that was what in each album there's been like something I've been you know it's like a self you know something you're kind of discovering by doing it and like on the last one, you know, really writing the music and incorporating more ele- explicit elements of free jazz and stuff. And on this album, I sort of produced it myself. I, I worked still closely with Leo Abraham. He engineered, he, he mixed it and there was no pr- other producer there. It was just me. So it was kind of a chance to be, you know, which has been something that, I, that I've been developing over the last couple of records, but just really fully being there and arranging in the moment with the musicians and not having an, you know, and just kind of being in, involved in that process myself, which is super fun. So, yeah, that's just kind that of... You can, um, that you're finding ways of, that, that you have been working like that, because I'm sure that's going to serve well in the, this kind of strange new... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Are there any, are there any kind of collaborations, any uh, that, that, you, that you've kind of been aware of that are coming out or, that, that, you know, that our, that our listeners can look out for? Anything you've been listening to or... Well, I love. I do love the. I love the band we were just discussing before we started recording, which is uh, Merope, M E R O P E, mm. which did some work at yeah, the book. Bo- they did a yeah. concert at the bookshop. They did, yeah. And it's a Lithuanian singer Indre and a Belgian guitarist Bert Kuhls and a flute player, and they um, they are up to some beautiful stuff. And mm. um, and I had Bert, the guitar player, play on my record, and. There's always deep stuff coming out in all different forms. Uh, the saxophone player Sam Gendel, who played on my last, my new record and the and the most recent one, I really love what he's up to. He in the middle of the quarantine, he has a thing called Fresh Bread on Bandcamp, where he's putting up he's put up a new track every single day 
since it began. Wow. And <laughs> it's one of those great things where like the first week or week and a half is beautiful. And it's kind of what you know of him as doing, which is very uh, John Hassel influenced sax harmonized saxophone stuff. But um, but, you know, as it gets into like by now, like the last few tracks he's been putting out are just getting stranger and weirder and <laughs> each one better than the last because you know you, you, out of desperation you start turning to whatever whatever you turn you make to. me feel like a total slouch like i know new, a whole new world every single day i know so, i've mainly been washing dishes yeah no i've been doing a lot of that as well although not selling any coffee at the shop so i suppose probably washing ah, no. in, in, in some total probably washing less dishes so yeah, have, you, right. have you have you been finding any time to read at all um in between I'm, the dishes or <laughs> i'm very determined uh i I'm reading 206066. Oh, wow. Okay. Roberto Bologna. I'm also a third of the way through that at the moment. Oh, are you reading it, Anthony? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Shit, we should have made this a 2666 book club. We could have done a whole book club <laughs> of it today. I did the classic thing. I'm I'm terrible. I'm like the down was beginning. I bought all the longest books thinking I would just read them all like, you know, I'd have tons of time. And I read like 50 pages of the beginning of Underworld. And then I read 50 pages of the beginning of uh the man without qualities and just i couldn't concentrate <laughs> nothing was sticking and all the big ones I, I was not feeling underworld at all but really i loved i loved that opening the novella you know when the... yeah i know i i liked the novella i yeah. liked the novella but yeah, once but... the book in, in once the book started itself i kind of lost i'm not saying it's i mean i gave up i have the right to say anything until i give it a yeah i think like there. the kind of looming threat of of cold war kind of the way that hangs over the book yeah impressive for yeah the, uh, yeah current, um atmosphere yeah i know what yeah. you mean it just wasn't it wasn't the style of writing is like i know that he's a great writer of that style but it's a certain sort of like self-conscious american thing that like writing in the present tense and kind of a deadpan it wasn't my thing it didn't wasn't doing it from remotely but the Bol bolaño is just fire mm, mm. The, the first part i just couldn't incredible he, just, he cracks me up so much i don't know what it I is i know yeah, and it's it has that wildness to it, and like like, yeah, it just is the you know it's fire. So I'm deep in that zone. It's right the I mean, I, he's a great writer for the moment, isn't he? Because he's always writing about things that are so unbelievably horrific. Yes. Yeah. His books, yeah, his books are hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you you could imagine him writing about what's now. I mean, yeah, and and there's something very passionate about them. Like even if he's writing about stuff that would theoretically be super nerdy like academics writing about a german author and you know it's yeah. it still feels like so intense and like you know wild yeah i love it mm. and i've been deeply obsessed uh as a, in terms of music listening i've been going through and this will maybe date me as like a 39 year old person but um maybe it won't i don't know but is uh, the rapper mf doom and all his aliases, Victor Vaughn, um, Mad, you know, Mad Villain, and all of his his records from the early 2000s, <clears throat> which I've been listening to obsessively, and also often reading, a, uh, you know, rhymes while while listening. Mm -hmm. The the just like any single sentence of any of those, there's it's so so good. There's this line I was asking people to put their favorite lines of his on there. Uh, on Twitter, I said, who's, you know, favorite MF Doom lyric, like, I'll start. And my, mine was, there's four sides to every story. If these walls could talk, they'd probably still ignore me. That's <laughs> 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 so good. And my friend Mara Carlyle, the great musician, 
hers was a line from a song I didn't know. It was something about snack wells, and then it was then it was like we our love we could be immortal like our you know talking to his girlfriend we could be immortal like Henrietta Stackwell, and I didn't know who that was, so I looked up who she was, and it was a black woman in America in the 50s who had cancer at a fairly young age and died. And but when when she went into the hospital, they harvested her cells without asking her permission or anything. And the cells that they harvested are still being used in some capacity. Like they were like they they had this incredible scientific effect, like her cells that were then re- reproduced to create some. I don't know whether it was some antibody to help cancer or something. And so her cells are immortal, like the love of MF wow. Doom for his girlfriend. But the whole subtext of it is that. She was black and her family was never, they didn't get any, they didn't ask her permission before doing it. And the family has never gotten any money for the, you know, from what, from like the incredible, like whatever the profits of this process. So like there's this complete like racial political subtext to the line, like it's insane. And it's a completely tossed off line. It's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Deep. That, that's my dish. That's my dishwashing. Dishwashing music. I was listening. My 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 uh, listening recommendation for the day was that NTS did um, a Zelda uh, soundtrack um, mix. Wait, wow. like what? You mean like Legend of Zelda? Yeah, Legend of Zelda. Yeah, that Zelda. sounds amazing. Is yeah, there a so, way to hear it? Yeah. So if you just if you just um, Google NTS and uh, it's, it's it's on their recommended picks. Uh, I would recommend That's amazing. It if you want a kind that of sounds incredible. Hard hit of nostalgia. Um, no doubt. Keeping <laughs> your subconscious somewhere. What about you, Anthony? Oh, what have I been listening to? Actually, the um, the album you alerted to me to recently, the um, Ida one. Mm, beautiful. Was, will you Will you find me? I think. Will you find me? I've been loving that. Beautiful um, masterpiece. And some Sicilian folk music. I've been I've been really liking that. Do you speak Italian? I don't. I'm trying to learn. You just love songs. listening to the words. Yeah. Oh, and you're trying to learn a bit. Yeah. It's just also just the way their voices sound and the guitars and stuff. I find very, it's so, it's so unique. That's oh. fantastic. I've been going back a bit to uh, somebody who, people who read books, I think would be well to check out, which is Arto Lindsay. Arto Lindsay, mm. the musician who was in the early 70s. He's like a legendary downtown punk figure of the late eight, late 70s, early 80s, the no-wave scene. He had a band called DNA, where he was like mistaken for a musician by the owner of CBGB. And the guy hired him for a gig, not realizing he wasn't a musician. So he bought a guitar <laughs> and found a couple friends. And they like just became this completely like mind-bending, like Brian Eno was obsessed with them and all this stuff. And he never tuned his guitar. He just became this incredible noise guitarist. And all the critics at the time mistook him for like a jazz guitarist who'd become an abstract player. But actually, he just had never learned a guitar or tuned it. (laughs) And he's an incredible improviser. And he, but then he kind of remade himself on the early 90s and these string of solo songwriting albums on Ani DeFranco's label under his. And his lyrics are just so good just beautiful and he sings he's from brazil so he sort of sings in the some of them are, are in portuguese but a lot of them are in english and he sings in this really gentle you know brazilian influenced style but the words are the 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 the, the, the such beautiful lyrics mm. 
one to check out for sure. And can you just tell us about the Patreon you just launched, your Patreon page? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking, <laughs> Anthony. Um, I've just started a Patreon. I've broken down and done it like so much this current era of, of history. It's kind of fun so far. It's cool. I've been putting secrets on there for the people who have followed secrets. me. So we secret music that nobody's ever heard, odd things from here and there. And um, and posting little stories for them as well. Patreon.com slash Sam Amadon. It's well worth your $4 a month. I will make it worth your $4 a month and more with all manner of uh, mysteriousness. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to it in the in with this podcast so yeah, people can find that nice and easy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Sam. That was, that was fantastic. Yeah, great to yeah. speak to you guys. Yeah, Thanks for stopping by, and yeah. I will whenever I can. Whenever it becomes possible again, I'll be back at the bookshop. Oh, yeah, in real life. That would be great as well. <laughs> Looking forward to that next record. Yeah, absolutely. Look after yourself. Cheers, dudes. Talk to you soon. Well, that's brilliant. I think we could use a bit more of... Um the communitarian thinking that Sam describes there in, uh, I don't know, just in all aspects of our lives. Mm, for sure. Mm. That was yeah, a pretty fascinating dive into, into the man's mind. Definitely. I've always found it strange how um, folk music seems much more able to combine leftist politics with this, with the culture, um, with the folk culture than, um, than in literature as we were kind yeah. of discussing with um, Hellball in the last episode. So perhaps that's something for another episode, if anyone yeah. wants to talk to us about um, politics and folk tradition, then please get in touch on podcast at Better Fisher Books and we can k- continue to plough that furrow. Um, and if you wanted to keep ploughing the furrow of Sam Amadon's music, there's a great video um, where he performs the anthology of um, Harry Smith um, EP anthology of American folk music he released called The Fate of Flower Garden Live. Um, but you can stream on YouTube at Ancien Belgique. And I was just cruising it, and a comment posted 10 hours ago said, so, 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 so good. Great thing to watch at 4 a.m. during lockdown. So that's uh that's uh if that's a rec- if that's not a recommendation uh, all you night owls <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's a good one well we'll link that in the liner notes and also sam's patreon i, I think it's really important to be supporting um, musicians it's a pretty precarious life uh anyway as it is normal yeah. times yeah so um if you do listen to sam and uh like what you hear it's only four dollars a month and as, as he says, you will get access to his secrets. So, <laughs> what more could you want? What more could you want? Well, I think that's that's us for this week, and um, thanks for joining us. Um, and hear from you, hear from you, hear from us again soon. We'll be back. We'll be back. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Sam Fisher and Anthony Hurley, joined by Sam Amadon. This show was co-produced by Ant Hurley and Dan Fuller, with music by Dear Brother. Expect more of this in the future. We're widening out the scope of the podcast. 
going into the nooks and crannies of contemporary culture. Hope you enjoyed it. See you all soon.